Would you uh, join with me in prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come now to your word, we pray that you settle our hearts and soften our hearts to receive your word. May uh, the words that I speak be faithful and true to your word, that it may strengthen, encourage, and challenge our brothers and sisters here. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, As some of you know, uh, I worked as a lawyer for half of my career. Um, I advised uh, government agencies, dabbled in family law, uh, and also uh, dabbled in criminal law. Part of my job as a lawyer was to give legal advice. Giving an explanation on how the law applies uh, to a client's particular circumstances. And my job wasn't just to give legal advice, but honest legal advice. Even if the advice meant bad news for my client. On rare occasions, rather than accepting my advice and coming to terms with the bad news, a client would come up to me and give some ridiculous legal argument which they say could turn the case around for them. Arguments that may sound reasoned on the surface, but are in fact wrong. Arguments which we call specious arguments. And it's my job not to just discourage such ideas, but to shut these down as soon as I can through the careful explanation of the law. Look, uh, I read on the internet that all I need to do is claim that I'm a sovereign citizen. Please note that down, that I have now declared the common law of Australia has no jurisdiction over me, and I do not consent being dragged in front of a court. You can tell the police that. Yeah, nah, that's not going to work. I get it that you read this on the internet and you've got a lot of law-sounding words there, but what you're suggesting won't get you out of trouble. Sure, uh, some legal concepts you've raised, like making declarations and withdrawing consent, apply in some context, but you're simply wrong to think that you can do the same when there are criminal charges against you. The sovereign citizen argument is a specious argument. All right, all right, all right, right. But the car I was using before the crash was registered, get this, was registered in the company name. I was driving during work hours. So it was the company which crashed the car, not me. They should switch the charges from me to the company. No, you crashed the car. Again, what you suggest sounds probably, possibly right superficially, but it's actually wrong. Sure, companies can be held liable for the actions of its employees, but that doesn't stop prosecutors from charging you personally. You can't hide behind a company to avoid fronting the law. You're wrong. But you'd be living a fantasy 
if you think you had a chance of running these arguments. Now, the client might not have felt great for me shutting down his legal arguments, but it's my job as a lawyer to give honest advice. It's my job, and also the decent thing to do, to tell him the truth. He has no defense, and he won't win. It's better for him to know the truth than to live in the fantasy that he has a possibly winnable argument when he does not. The passage that uh, Sam read for us is a bit like listening to honest legal advice. It is a passage that not only affirms the bad news awaiting for you, me, and all of humanity, but also shuts down any unwinnable, specious arguments we can think of to avoid Judgment Day. It is a passage that shuts down any right-sounding but actually wrong defenses we can think of to get out of God's final justice. Um, Over the past few weeks, um, we've been going through the book of Romans. As Pastor Eugene summarized for us each week, this portion of the Bible teaches that in God's economy, there are no good guys That's why everyone needs saving. Last week in particular, we learned that bad guys need saving because there is a judgment day. A day set in the future where everyone will face God's final justice, where all the thoughts and actions of our lives will be examined, judged, and sentenced by God. While this is terrifying, even offensive, The Bible insists that this is true, and not just true, but that this justice is fair. If you have your Bibles open, you can go and look at chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul says, God shows no favoritism. There is no special exemption of a particular people group, even if God has had a history with them in the past, like the descendants of the Old Testament Jews. Everyone both the judgy, self-righteous, critical moralist, as well as the self-interested, keeps-to-himself individualist, will be judged. God will repay each person according to what they have done. Two truths. God's final justice is coming, and God's justice is fair. It is at this point we reach our passage. It is at this point, Paul provides a careful explanation of God's justice and how it works in light of these two truths in a way as if he can foresee specious arguments coming back at him from his readers. It is as if Paul knows that his readers would be tempted to pit against and stretch these two truths of God's justice is coming and God's justice is fair to avoid the bad news that is about to hit them. That they would try to come up with some defenses to avoid judgment day. So he writes to shut these downs. They need to know the truth. He cares for them too much 
to not want them to be at risk of living in a fantasy that they possibly have a winnable argument to avoid God's final justice. And what we can infer from this passage is three wrong defenses. The first defense is the I did not know defense. You see, um, one irresistible thought when we're told that God's justice is fair, especially if you're an unbeliever, is the thought that we can avoid God's judgment because we don't know God or his law. If God's justice is fair, it should be fair that I am judged with what I know. I'm not a Christian and have no idea about all its rules and regulations. If he's fair, he can't judge me for what I don't know. In fact, the logical thing for me to do is to continue to be ignorant as much as possible, as so God will not be able to judge me. If successful, I will have an impenetrable, I do not know, defense against God's final justice. But like the sovereign citizen argument, (laughs) that way of thinking is specious. Sounds right, but is actually wrong. Sure, uh, Paul uh, does confirm knowledge of God and his laws is a very important aspect of God's fairness. God will judge more severely those who have the written biblical law, that is, what is written in the Old Testament, more severely than those who do not. Verse 12 says, All who sin apart from the law, that is the written biblical law, but um, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So it is, um, to an extent, correct to say that if you don't have God's written law, by God's fairness, you won't be judged by the written law. But the reason why the I do not know defense can't be used is because God doesn't judge the world by the written biblical law per se. He judges the world in accordance with his moral law. God judges the world in accordance with his moral law. And you see, the written biblical law, which is a near perfect representation of God's moral law, might not be known to everyone, but his moral law, it's etched into the DNA of all humanity. Indeed, When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Even if you don't have the written law available to you, all people, in fact, do know God's moral law to some degree, albeit to a lesser degree than those who have the written law. It's true, isn't it? At least, you must agree that there are just some things that are universally morally right and wrong, whether you believe in God or not. You don't have to be a Christian to know that it's wrong to senselessly kill someone, to lie, or to steal. You don't even need the Bible to know that loving and caring for your parents is the right thing to do. This morality is hardwired by God into everyone, so by nature, everyone does things required by God's law. 
Um, one of the things that um, uh, my kids absolutely love is uh, Happy Meals uh, from McDonald's. Uh, one time I brought a Happy Meal from them and uh, we were opening the packet and the toy was missing its instructions. Turned out I had been uh, using the instructions to hold the ketchup for my chips. Um, but my kids took out the toy, fiddled with it, uh, you know, located you know, a white-looking cog and started to wind it and it started to move. They didn't have the instructions but by nature did things required by the instructions. As they played, they showed that they knew the requirements of the instructions. Now, they didn't have every requirement of the instructions. If they did, they would have figured out that the toy had stickers for its, you know, the eyes and the feet, again, underneath the ketchup. Um, but you could say that they knew the instructions. In the same way, humans do by nature things required by God's law, and as humans, we have a sense of morality, a law for ourselves. That is, we actually know God's moral law. And to the extent that our morality is consistent with God's moral law, we will be judged accordingly. He's not going to judge you for, say, how you offered foods uh, to dead ancestors, dead ancestors and statues because your Asian parents told you as a child to do so. You didn't know. But God will judge you on the things you did know were wrong. How you gossiped. How you talked smack behind a friend's back. How you lied on your tax returns or home loan application. How you ghosted someone knowing it will hurt them. And the point is, if we know, you can't say, I didn't know. The Bible teaches that you cannot use a I didn't know defense on Judgment Day. Now, you might, you might say, okay, fine. I definitely did know. And some things I did were wrong. But overall, I'm not a bad guy. By my standard, I've done a lot of good. I, I volunteer with the SES. I, I help out at my school. I, I support charities. And in comparison to the wrong things I've done, my good clearly outweighs the bad. If God is fair, then I'm entitled to avoid God's final judgment. I will avoid facing God's coming judgment because I've done more good than bad. To that, Paul says, yeah, nah. Again, that is specious. Sounds reasoned, but actually wrong. Let's read verse 12 again. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The Bible doesn't say all who have sinned more than what, they, what good that they did. It just says who sin." The more good than bad defense can't be used because it presumes that God's judgment operates as a scale. If you do enough good in your life and it outweighs the bad, then you get through the pearly gates. But no. Paul explains God's justice system is in fact like the Australian justice system uh, and every other justice system in the world, as a matter of fact. The issue is not whether you've been good enough. 
The issue is whether you've done anything wrong. In Australia, you can be a war hero, a scientist working to cure cancer, the most cherished cricket icon who set up charities for, uh, for kids with special needs. But if you do something illegal, whether it be speeding over the limit or punching a guy in a pub, you've broken the law and you need to face justice. It really doesn't matter if you're a good person or done a lot of good. In the same way, you may be a model student, valued contributor to your workplace, a good friend, a filial son or daughter, a sacrificing parent, done good that overshadows any moral roles you can think of in your life. But that doesn't mean you don't need to be held accountable for the wrongs you have done. You have to face justice. Respectfully, you would be wrong to think that you could use a more good-than-bad argument before God on Judgment Day. It's not how justice works. <laughs> fine, fine. Then I'll cop it. Because if God's justice is fair, then the punishment can't be that bad for me. You know, fairness means my punishment should be proportionate to what I actually did. Come on, talking smack, fudging my home loan application, everyone does that. Is it seriously a big deal? I wasn't a mass murderer. I'm not a pedophile. I, the most I'll get is some purgatory, some kind of spiritual find. It will be a slap on the wrist. This is where the bad news really hits home. While tempting to believe, what you say is simply not true. The punishment will not be a slap on the wrist. Verse 12 says, All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The Bible says that the penalty of breaking God's moral law isn't some kind of like spiritual fine or jail time. It is perishment. The consequences and punishment for any sin is that you will perish. And, and like before, it doesn't say all who commit the worst kinds of sin will receive perishment. It simply says all who sin will perish. And to be, clear, to be clear, the perishment isn't just, you know, perishment into nothingness. No, what perishment means here in the Bible is to perish into hell, the place for eternal punishment, a place more horrible than you can imagine, where there is nothing good. Um, on the surface, this might seem illogical. How on earth can God be fair? Surely fairness involves proportionally matching the severity of the punishment with the seriousness of the crime. Uh, we do that in Australia. Parking in a no-parking zone, parking ticket. Importing drugs, jail time. And to a degree, you know, uh, God's judgment will mean some sins will be punished more severely than others. Uh, after all, the Bible confirms that the experience of hell will be worse for some than for others. Jesus says in the Gospels that judgment will be more bearable for the cities of Tyre and Sidon and more tolerable for Sodom than for others. But to answer the question of why hell is the fair punishment for any sin, the answer is found in the fact that sin 
is sin against God. All sin are principally sins against God. You, you see, it is fair in Australia for the severity of the punishment to be proportionate to the seriousness of the crime, because whatever crime you commit is against people. The wrong being committed is against other humans, other humans who are treated equal under the law. Both the offender and victim are equals. But justice looks very different if the offender and the victim are not equals. Now, let, let, let me explain. Suppose uh, you've landed a new job as a grad at a company. You're invited to the welcome party for grads. You're meeting the people around you, and you know you see a table with all the canapes, and you line up to it. And right in front of you, you see a tubby young man, me, heaping a mountain of food on the plate. I am grabbing more than my fair share.、Uh, one of the canapes, you know, the, the the salmon with the with the cream cheese on the watercress biscuit with the tiny little dill on top, falls off the plate. I slip on it. The plate flies into the air and lands flat on the floor. You can't help but. Burst into a loud, fat-shaming laughter with your finger pointing at me serves you right, fatty. Now, if I was a grad, equals with you, your assigned mentor, who so happens to be standing in the line behind you, might say, "Hey, man, give the guy a break. That's not cool." But what if I was not a grad? What if I was your mentor's reporting supervisor? What would your mentor's reaction be then? What if I was the department head? What if I was the CEO? What if I was the multi-million-dollar client that is single-handedly saving the company from insolvency? What kind of action taken by the mentor or the company would be appropriate for you fat shaming me? Surely it would be different if I was just another grad. Wrongs that are small when done against peers and equals become serious big wrongs when it's against someone more important and greater. Some wrongs are small in some contexts. But a gigantic in other contexts, and in the context that God is not the CEO, not the Prime Minister, not the King of England, but the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, what you may seem to be a small wrong is in fact a grave and serious wrong being done against Him. And for a wrong being done to an infinitely important and Infinitely great person, it is fair that the punishment matches the seriousness of the wrong. You can understand why you will not get a slap on the wrist on Judgment Day. You can understand why perishment to hell is the appropriate and certain punishment for the wrongs you have done against God. Can I just take a minute? Um, and speak to our friends、uh, joining us today who are undecided about Christianity. 
The point on the passage is that no one can escape God's coming judgment. And no one has any defense on judgment day. I understand that you may not believe the claims of Christianity now, but just hypothetically, just bear with me. If we say the Bible's claims are true, if there was a judgment day coming for you, what do you expect to say when you meet God? When you meet your maker? He brings you the list of wrongs you've done in your life, all the secrets that you have harbored in your heart. What answer will you give? If you think that you've got a great answer, an impenetrable defense, a loophole to God's justice system, the passage is giving you the honest advice that you're living with a fantasy. It is urging you to face the hard truth that there are no defenses available to you. When you face God's judgment, you'll be found guilty and given a sentence of perishment. Friend, what you need is not a defense. What you need is a pardon. You need a cancellation of the sentence against what God is going to make against you. You need the ultimate kind of forgiveness. And the only way for you to be pardoned for your sins is if you put your trust in Jesus. In dying on the cross, Jesus took and paid the penalty of your sins so that you don't need to pay it. He bore your blame, your guilt, your transgressions, so you can be free. This is why the Christian message is good news. There is truly a way out. And this is the only way. If any of this has been convincing, if not reasonable to you, would you please talk to someone here after the service? Me, uh, one of the elders, Min, uh, Chong, or uh, Uncle Dan, uh, uh, Popo, that's right, the chair. Uh, please come up to us and speak to us. Now, if you are a uh, regular to our church and are a Christian, I hope you have not switched off. So easy for us when we study a passage on judgment like this that we turn the volume down, put ourselves as a spectator, allow the words to wash past us as we think that this does not apply to us. It applies to one of the unbelievers there. My guess is that we sat through enough church sermons to know that we have a Jesus defense. That when judgment day comes, as soon as I'm called, Come on in, Mr. Grace Pointer. All I need to do is walk through the door to God's judgment throne, put my hands up, call out, follow of Jesus here, and walk straight back out. And if we turn the volume down in listening to what God has to say to us, we may miss out in being corrected in what we may believe about judgment to be true. You see... If you think that you can avoid God's judgment because you have Jesus, you're wrong. If you think you can raise a Jesus defense to avoid God's judgment, you are wrong. Because if you read the beginning of Romans, 
you will remember Paul is not writing this letter to unbelievers. He is writing to Christians. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. And verse 16 of our passage doesn't say, this will take place on the day when God judges unbelievers' secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. It says, God judges people's secrets. People, including you and me. If that were not clear, uh, later in chapter 14, uh, Paul says, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And again in 2 Corinthians, if you don't believe me, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There is no such thing as a Jesus defense against God's judgment. What we have, if we trust in Jesus, is a Jesus pardon. Christians are not exempt from God's judgment, insofar God's judgment includes calling all people, including Christians, to give an account for their life's deeds. And let me tell you, from my experience as a lawyer who has sat through judgments of tribunal members, magistrates, districts, and Supreme Court judges, judgment is not a pleasant process. It is not pleasant for anyone to look at what you've done wrong, say what you've done wrong, and hold you to account for the wrongs that you've done. And so when, the, when you face the judgment of God, it would be an incredibly gross understatement to think it would be an unpleasant process. God will look at the secrets of hearts. What you've done wrong. Say what you've done wrong. Hold you to account for the wrongs that you've done in all your life. What was written in your hearts. What your consciousness has been telling you. What your accusing and excusing thoughts were at each time you made a choice or a decision. And um, given that our church is comprised of a law-abiding, polite people who've never interacted with the law, let alone stand before someone judging you, I suspect it's very hard for you to imagine or remotely grasp of how cosmically unpleasant the judgment of God actually is. And to help you try and bring you a bit closer, I'm going to do something very unorthodox. I'm going to give you my best impression of what judgment looks like based on my experience as a lawyer inspired by the Bible, particularly Revelations chapter 2 verse, and chapter 3. Now, no, no, I, I'm taking a huge risk here uh, of either misrepresenting myself or God, but my hope and prayer is that in this exercise, it will be fruitful for your personal reflection. You ready? Here I go. In the manner of the Most High God and the grace pointer seated before his holy throne, I have judged the secrets of your heart and have, you, have found you guilty for neither worshipping nor honouring me on multiple occasions, contrary to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. 
I find on various Sundays between the years 2015 and 2023, you had attended church purporting to give me praise through song, only to give me words but none of your heart. I accept the prosecuting devil's submissions that what you had given me was nothing more than a karaoke session. Between the years of 2013 and 2023, you had attended services in which I, the Lord God, was speaking to you through my holy word. And instead of taking my words to heart, you did allow yourself to tune out and even sleep on multiple occasions. I accept your excusing thoughts that you were tired by external factors such as young children or work. I do not accept that on specific occasions you could have made better choices to ensure that you were not tired, notwithstanding those external factors. I have heard and accepted the testimony of your conscience. As you are aware, your conscience had urged you on multiple occasions to stop watching that program on your phone to better manage your time, and you chose not to do so. I accept the prosecuting devil's submissions that you have dishonored me by the fact that you have never turned up, late, turned, up, never turned up late to a work meeting with the company CEO or failed to pay attention when he was speaking to you, but have not yet with the highest ruler of this universe. On the charges of greed, lack of compassion for the poor, or otherwise fail to be generous, contrary to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Luke 12, verse 33, I have judged the secrets of your heart and have found you guilty. On multiple occasions between 2020 and 2023, you ignored the words of Jesus, which was written on your hearts, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to eat. As you walked past the homeless men and women on the CBD streets of Sydney, you left Christ to hunger, you left Christ to thirst. I receive、uh, folders one, two. 1 to 15 of Exhibit 13 titled Personal Expenses Spreadsheet. I accept that these folders are an accurate and truthful representation of all personal expenses you have made for yourself. I reject the notion that a daily barista made chai latte constitutes a necessity in furtherance of, my, of doing my kingdom work. I reject the notion that an upgrade of your electronic device with the frequency you determined constituted necessity in furtherance of doing my kingdom work. I receive and accept pages 1 and 2 of Exhibit 14 titled Givings Spreadsheet, that they are an accurate and truthful representation of all givings made by you to your church, the work of the gospel, and the poor in your life. The court transcript will note that these two pages are single sided, double spaced, And in font 16. I receive and accept Exhibit 17 being a full list of missionaries who had worried about their next paycheck, overseas Christians who had hungered and died of diseases, and charitable causes which were within the scope of your financial help at all points of your life. Sit down, Mr. Grace Pointer, I'm not finished. I have judged the secrets of your heart and found you guilty for failing to exercise brotherly love, contrary to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Notwithstanding being told on multiple occasions that you and your particular church friendship group appear cold and unwelcoming, I find that no material steps were taken by you to change that. I do not accept the accusation that you or your group intended or, in fact, was 
a clique, but I do accept that your actions and inactions by you and your group egregiously fail to exercise brotherly love. I shall now proceed to list members of your spiritual family who were hurt by you and your group's actions. Mary Jane, Bobby Sue, Jane Smith. I shall now proceed to list persons who have left the faith and the cause of which was materially because of you and your group's actions. Joe Smith, John Doe. You have been found guilty. Now on to sentencing. These charges that I have brought against you are very serious, Mr. Grace Pointer. And as someone who has had knowledge of the Bible and my law for this many years of your life, you know that the consequences are very grave. You do not only deserve death, but the worst kind of perishment. But my son Jesus has placed your name in the book of life. He has paid the penalty of your sin. You have been pardoned. This means that all the wrongs that you have done now no longer count against you, Mr. Grace Pointer. There is no more guilt or shame for you. I will now order the court file, including its exhibits, to be archived for destruction. You're free, Mr. Grace Pointer. Oh, how sweet it is to be pardoned. What a relief to be free. And so we are because of the blood of Jesus. But I hope you can also see that the experience of judgment being held to account is gut-wrenching. Just because we have Jesus as our redeemer doesn't mean that judgment is meaningless for us. We, not, we, we, we not might be gripped by fear that drives us into the rocks or uh, forces us into the ground because we have the assurance of Jesus' pardon, yes. But we sure ought to be serious about our sin, knowing we would still be held to account. God's judgment is there to motivate us to take sin seriously. So before you commit that particular sin, before you drag your feet in doing good, remember, you need to give an account. Judgment is meant to lead us to take our faith seriously and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Brothers and sisters, as we go out into the week, let us not live in the fantasy that God's judgment doesn't really matter to us. And as Paul says, let's not presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience because God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance.